Mino Line Media presents Business of the Beat. Hi, I'm Kendra Bracken Ferguson, and I am a founder, brand builder, entrepreneur, and believe in the mantra Carpe Diem. I created this podcast, Business of the Beat, through my own experience as a beauty executive to talk about, tell stories, and highlight the business of beauty through conversations with beauty and wellness entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, helping to diversify the industry. This week on Business of the Beat. And that was very much the order of the day. If you were a superstar artist, you were a part. You were on a pedestal. You were removed. The fans looked up to you and looked up at you. And they never saw you vulnerable. They never saw um, you being real. You were very much this this very iconic, far away, aspirational idea. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Kendra Bracken Ferguson, and welcome to Business of the Beat. Today's guest is CZ Kersman, founder of Our X. But before we get started, don't forget to follow, rate, and subscribe to Business of the Beat on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss an episode, and your ratings and reviews mean so much to us. All right, everyone. Cece is a music executive, board director, private investor, and entrepreneur. In her 20-plus year career, Cece achieved numerous successes as a music industry leader before founding Nexus Management Group and shepherding the careers of some of the world's most successful music artists. She serves on the public, private, and nonprofit boards, including Revlon, Inc., Man Group, Lambin Group, United Talent Agency, and Warner Music Group. Cece is passionate about mentoring female entrepreneurs and is a strong advocate for diversity in the boardroom. She has invested, launched, and funded several early and growth stage businesses across media, fashion, beauty, and consumer goods. A champion for equitable innovation with deep expertise in branding and consumer behavior, CC helps brands maintain relevancy, achieve differentiation, and connect with increasingly sophisticated consumers in a complex digital world. CC's understanding of industry ecosystems and the inherent inequities that create unmet market opportunities inspired her to found the newly launched consumer tech platform, OurX. Cece, I am so honored to be sitting here next to you for season four of Business of the Beat. Welcome to the show. Kendra, thank you for having me. I'm your biggest fan. (laughs) Thank you, Cece. It's the same. I kept saying to the team, I said, oh my gosh, we have to get Cece on the show. We have to get Cece on the show. And now you are here. Cece, I think about you and your career and all that you have done from entertainment to mentoring, to support, and now joining us as a beauty entrepreneur. It's pretty amazing when you think about everything that you've accomplished. And so I know for me, I'm so inspired and I just admire you so much. So what we like to do on the show, we like to learn a little bit about our guests. Talk about who you are. I know that you've grown up in multiple countries from the Middle East to Asia to Europe. So who is Cece Kirsten? So, well, first I have to say, I love to watch you work. So I'm just excited (laughs) being here. Um, 
Yeah, I'm a bit of a rolling stone. I grew up everywhere, as you said. Most of my childhood, my family lived in Africa, in Cameroon and Malawi. And I think it's great to be a citizen of the world in the sense that I think if I have one characteristic that I credit to my upbringing, it's the ability to be really comfortable being uncomfortable, right? (laughs) Like living in different places, different cultures, being dropped into places that I'd never seen before, adapting, learning on your feet, figuring out how to work in different rooms that, that are unfamiliar. I think that's something that makes me very comfortable now. And I credit it to the way I was raised in my childhood. At the time, I hated it because I wanted to just be an all-American kid growing up in the suburbs, you know, doing what all (laughs) other kids in the movies did. Exactly. Four square kickball. And um, but as I look back on it, I think it was a great gift to have the benefit of being raised in many different places. Where were you born? I was born in New York. My family is from New York and I've lived most of my adult life in New York. We're ride or die New Yorkers, (laughs) six generations deep. No one knows how to drive. Um, So, you know, very much I consider New York my, my home, but I consider the world at large sort of my playground. Wow. You know, it's so fascinating. We were talking about our children before and, and their expectations of traveling. And it's so fascinating because my parents were in the military. I was born in Germany. Oh, so you know. So I know. And we've always traveled. I always traveled with my mom. And as I got older, I started meeting people who had never left. When I lived in New York, it was always shocking to me. People who had never been to the World Trade Center, but they were born in Brooklyn. And they never experienced things. And there's so much, I love how you said, like being a citizen of the world, you just learn. And I think that's part of what's happening in the world today. We're so, we were in these silos and we've forgotten how vast the world is and how many people and experiences. And when you think about those experiences that you had, what was kind of your path of growing up? Like, did you know, I want to go to Harvard or I want to do this? Like, what was the path that kind of drove you into adulthood from those experiences? Um, what was the path? I, I mean, you make it sound like I had a plan. <laughs> I think so I'm, like, I'm going to Harvard. In my mind now, I'm like, did I have a plan? Did I, have, I had no plan. I had no plan. Let, let us be very clear. The, the only plan... I ever formulated in my youth was around this passion for music. And I was that kid, like headphones on all the time, 24 <laughs> seven, expansive CD. We had CDs back in my day, expansive <laughs> CD collection. Um, I loved everything, jazz, country, hip hop, pop. And it was just like my thing. I had zero talent, still have zero talent. But as a fan and a consumer of music, it was my solace and it was my passion. And it, it really was what got me through <laughs> the day. And it manifested that when I was graduating from college, I said, I want to try and make this my thing. I want to try and convert my passion into a career and, and see if they'll have me and Thankfully, you know, one year, one year later, one year of struggle later, I was able to find my way into the music industry. And it has been an absolute privilege. Every day I woke up 
pinching myself saying, I can't believe this is my job. I mean, and a passion, we talk a lot as entrepreneurs, like, is it a hobby? Is it a passion? Is it a career? And you've worked with some of the most amazing artists of our time, from Michael Jackson to Alicia Keys to Shade. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And so you weren't a musician, though. Did you understand all of the pieces of music that you could do in terms of artist development? Like how, because a lot of people think music is just I'm an artist, but it's the world around the ecosystem. You know, I will say this. I, I think I have an okay musical ear when it comes to determining what's going to work with consumers. Mm -hmm. um, but really where my sweet spot was in artist development, and I always described it as building living brands and all the same factors and considerations that would go into building a consumer brand mm -hmm. really also go into building an artist's identity with their consumers. I always said, you know, artists all have a very strong view of who they are and what they represent. And I so my job is to ensure that if you go out on the street and ask that person on the street, are they going to say the same thing you said? Right. Or is it you living in your mind? That you're, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, is it real? And it's only real if it's it actually comes back to you in the same way. So, I mean, it's actually the idea of brand building and living brands where you're actually communicating, you know, how they speak to their community, how they build their community, how they, how they leverage their community into consumers, how they identify their brand in the real world and how they maintain and sustain that brand. So it's authentic and consistent. Like these are all the things that I love doing. And it's, it's funny because people ask, how I got into this world. And there are a lot of ways I got into this world, but you know, there are a lot of um, similarities. When I started investing, entrepreneurs and founders were so similar to working with artists, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So similar to you know, working with people with great vision and great passion and helping them realize that vision by putting all the pieces around them to make them successful. And part of that's also telling them what not to do, yes. right? <laughs> so I think the best artists and the best founders, and maybe, you know, even take Elon Musk, for example, right? Out of 20 ideas, 19 and a half, maybe that shit crazy. Right. But that other idea that, uh -huh. that you want to push through and you want to ensure happens can change the world. Yes. Um, and can make an enormous impact. So that, yeah, I always describe myself as a much better editor than a writer. <laughs> so um, that's why working with artists and then working with entrepreneurs seemed like a natural fit, working with talented people who have great vision and helping them realize that vision. What I love about this is, you know, even in, in my background, I think about when we started Digital Brand Architects, and it really was this notion of you are a brand and it's not just about taking a photo of yourself and posting it. And I love, there was an interview I was reading and you, you talk about the artist as an enterprise and that's exactly what you're saying with brand building. And so much of it is the curation of visionaries into greatness. Mm -hmm. And it is such a skill set and such a talent and to be able to take that vision and then say, let's turn it into a brand. I remember I was talking to an artist manager years ago, one of your friends who was literally, I was talking about 
the talent as a brand. They're like, they're not a brand. They're not a brand. And I'm like, oh, but they are. You just wait. And the particular manager didn't want their talent getting on social media. This is back um, years and years ago. And we were like, how can you build a brand and not be part of the brand conversation and silo your artists into this one thing whenever they're influencing so many people? And so you have been the curator, you've been the leader, the business brains behind all of this. And what was that like? Because you saw such a transition in the music industry. You've been in it a long time. What have you kind of seen? You know, I think you raise a really good point because having seen the various iterations over sort of generations of artists and their comfort with how they interact with their community has really evolved over time. Now, if when I first started, I'm going to tell a Chardet story because that'll date me, but <laughs> I, I love working with her. And she is an artist who would never wanted to be called a brand. And everything she did supported that. But she would put out a record when it overcame her, could take eight years. And I insisted she do press marketing, right? You've been gone eight years. People aren't just waiting around for your record to come out. Oh, you're here. Yeah. Great, great. Let's do SNL. Let's do this. Morning shows, you know, covers, et cetera. And she said, you know what I'm going to do? None of it. Zero. I'm going to do zero press. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be the end of my end of my career. I'm getting fired. If Sharday doesn't show up on a cover or on television, I'm definitely getting fired because we're never going to sell any records. And you know what? She came out number one record, biggest selling record of the year, because she was that, that was her brand, right? She was that artist, did things on her own terms and managed to create a, a following in a community Yes, in through her music. And that was a very interesting, she's a very unique artist in a very different time. And what I saw over time, you know, at that time, artists didn't want to do endorsements because it would be a sellout. Um, if you did a commercial, you do it in Japan to make a little money, but making, you know, you're sure that that commercial was never going to hit the U.S. The US. Yes. You didn't want any, and this is actors, this is musicians. If you were serious, uh, you would never do anything that would constitute a sellout. And there was this wall between the talent and their fans that was intentionally preserved. Yes at arm's length to keep the artists on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And that was very much the order of the day. If you were a superstar artist, you were apart. You were on a pedestal. You were removed. The fans looked up to you and looked up at you. And they never saw you vulnerable. They never saw um, you being real. You were very much this, this very iconic, far away, aspirational idea. The, when it, social media started becoming an important movement for artists and brands, these same artists who'd grown up in this generation, it did not compute for them to say, I'm going to open myself up. Yes. I'm going to pull down that wall and I'm going to allow my fans in. I'm going to allow them into my life. I'm going to pull back the curtain. I'm going to share things with them. I'm going to let them share things with me. I'm going to have this two-way dialogue it took a really long time for those artists to learn that. And I would argue a lot still have not yeah. gotten comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Now look today to the artists of today. 
I would argue they're not even selling music or, or yes. using music as their commodity. What they're doing is building community yep. and monetizing that community as their business. Taylor Swift. Yes. Taylor Swift is the gold standard of an artist today who has happened to build a community around her that sees her and she sees them. And that entire relationship is around connectivity. It's around having no wall. Yes. Whether it's in the lyrics that are incredibly vulnerable and open, whether it's the way she communicates by social media, whether it's the way she communicates from the stage, she has literally a hundred million friends. Yes. They believe it. She <laughs> believes it. And they're there for her. And so that openness is really, is really important because I think where the music industry is going, and this is, this is relevant when you talk about other types of brands is community, right? Yes. It is, it's the point of connection before an artist never could speak directly to their fan. Right. And didn't want to. They didn't want, <laughs> and yes. now you have to. Yeah. If you do not have a direct relationship and direct flow of communication wow. with your fan, with your consumer, with your customer, mm -hmm. you're done. You're broken. So I think the ones who really know how to build that community are authentic with that community are always going to be in the front of the line. It's so fascinating. We've been looking at you know, from, from our perspective, different companies to invest in. And I think we're suited so well as investors because we do have that branding and marketing. Yeah. And so we're seeing it outside of just this fine linear layer of finance because yes. it takes so yes. much to build a brand, to have the openness. I'm glad you mentioned Taylor because we talk about the dynamic of artists mm -hmm. and having had conversations with managers who are so protective and didn't want and it's hard. It would be interesting even with Sade today yeah. in that setup to how do you release an album and what's expected of you, what's required of you in the same way that as we think about CPG brands, mm -hmm. there is this level of pay to play that exists when you have that level of influence in terms of meeting your consumers because there's too much access mm -hmm. and you'll be left behind. Yeah. And so when you think about the translation of everything that you were doing with artists, what you've learned, and then the work that you're doing for mentorship from boards, when did you decide I'm now going to be the brand myself? Because you are a brand as well. Mm -hmm. You are. You're Cece Kersman. I'm a brand. a brand. I'm a brand facilitator. You're a brand facilitator. <laughs> I'm a brand amplifier you're and facilitator. I don't know that I'm a brand myself. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because I think it's interesting because as founders and leaders, our brand is to be the key opinion leader for the audiences that we're trying to cultivate and influence, right? When we think about RX and we think about what you're building, I'm excited about RX, but you were my gateway to RX because I'm such a fan of you. And so even the people that you're influence, you're bringing along for the ride because I believe in you, your brand and everything that you've built. Challenge me, Cece. Challenge I, me. <laughs> I, I think I think you you pose an interesting question, which is to ask if you were to have to articulate a brand. Which, by the way, I always asked artists to do. If you were to have to articulate your brand, what would that be? And and I say this, and it's not with humility. It's actually where I find my like a, my superpowers lie. I would want my brand to be 
the brand you've never heard of that has the greatest impact. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I like the idea of being able to drive behind the scenes change. I like the idea of having vehicles, whether they're artists mm -hmm. or brands that are able to demonstrate some of the impact and momentum I would like to see happening. Yes. And RX is a brand, but it really was born as an effort to impact the industry in a way that was resounding. So let's talk about RX because I'm so excited when you first talked about doing this brand and, you know, we're in the industry, so we see a lot of things. And I remember starting to read as you were launching and just being so excited about the story, the community. You've made it a purpose to say, I'm going to talk about other brands. I'm going to feature Sienna Naturals. And there's a lot of brands who are scared to talk about people in their space, who are scared to uplift. You're all about community and you're all about creating something that's innovative. So talk about this transition because I want to jump to RX, Nexus Management, private investment, being on these boards, and then our X. Bring us up to speed. What happened, Cece? What happened, Cece? What happened? Well, all of them converged. That's what happened. I do not come from the beauty industry. I, I describe myself as beauty adjacent. <laughs> um, obviously, I'm not a beauty aficionado or influencer. Um, I had the great fortune to be on two boards that started to influence my thinking. One was Johnson Publishing, which was my first board for JP Morgan when they made an investment. And that's the owners of Ebony Jet Fashion Fair and one of the great multi-generational black businesses. And so it was a privilege for me to be a part of that. And that's where I first started to explore beauty and what the beauty landscape looked like for a multicultural brand and consumer uh, in that we were looking at fashion fairs experience as a pioneer in, as a black beauty brand and what that journey had been and where it stood at that moment. So just in doing the research on that brand and the viability of the brand. It's like, this is pre-Fenty, okay? <laughs> so, you know, it was like, wow, this is so underpenetrated. I remember Fashion Fair as my mother and grandmother's brand and the pink and sitting on the counter. And, you know, not a lot had happened since then. And after that business, I went on the board of Revlon. So I had a different platform from which to look at the entire business and look at the marketplace. And, you know, what I saw from that vantage point, I was like, huh, a few things as an outsider that I'm seeing is consistent in the beauty industry, big beauty, right? All of the big beauty companies have isolated their multicultural groups. Mm -hmm. They yep. do not, Jacksonville, Chicago, they do not live in the headquarters. Yeah. Looking a little deeper, the multicultural group have different budgets, have different distribution yep. outlets. Very few had digital budgets and digital strategies. And effectively, they were consistent workhorses for the mothership that did not draw on the same level of investment, of innovation, of access to R&D, of access to, you know, uh, chemists. So, But they had these great heritage brands that continued year over year to be able to penetrate a market because they were familiar. And 
the the circular problem with that was because this was all that was being offered there was an assumption this was all that was desired mm-hmm. right yeah. so here you have a community who are experts in the multicultural consumer but are completely shut off from best practices yes. right you didn't even have e-commerce yes. in most of these brands so that that's really where this was born rx came about over years of studying this problem <laughs> and also looking at what was happening in the world of entrepreneurship and young brands as a result right so the consumer wasn't given the credit of wanting distribution in other outlets wanting more innovation in the ingredients wanting other distribution methods wanting sustainability wanting any of these things that have become best practices throughout the industry and the reason was because it wasn't being offered yes. so we were buying it yes. so again that circular problem and so that's really where this was born was setting out to demonstrate a few things because when i went to the powers that be and said why don't we why isn't there a prestige brand why aren't we using these new ingredients why aren't we the answers i got were ridiculous this consumer it's like saying you people <laughs> yes in beauty in beauty yes. talk this consumer is low income this consumer only trusts things that have been around for generations this consumer loves the smell of coconut this consumer <laughs> oh, likes God. orange in the package i mean yes. it went on and on and on and i was like mm, this consumer has a peloton yes this consumer is buying olaplex cuz you haven't given them yes. anything of their own right there was a very uh backwards view of who this consumer was and that within the multicultural what they call multicultural community was enormous diversity yes. of all everything yes so that's really where rx was born was as a research project to build data that would demonstrate the share of wallet yes that this consu- within this mm-hmm. consumer base and the demand that existed so actually rx was born out of doing that research and collecting the data and saying see here people myself included on one of these data points would love to see more offerings would love to have the power of preference targeted towards us i would love to be able to choose a heritage product but as an option yes. to something else not because that's what's being offered to me i would like to be able to access product yes. that online that was directed at me and not have to go find it on amazon i would like to be able to be marketed to outside of the low shelves of of drug stores yes. and beauty supply stores that i have to go you know drive hours to find and that's really where this came from it was looking at all the gaps in the market and looking at the research of our community and saying what do you not have that you want yes right this is i'm not the world has great products unfortunately a lot of the great products don't have the capital and financing which you are solving to be able to get to the market but the idea was like what what do you have what's missing more education more information mm-hmm. more personalization uh more products that bring in innovation that we don't see in a lot of the other products so it was really just again not a beauty genius really just did a lot of collected a lot of data and say what are the things that you feel like are missing and if a brand could introduce these things what would be the top 5 
And that was it. It was, we'd like to have a product that has innovation, that brings some of these innovations we're only seeing in the general market, like yes. Olaplex and Katein, but designed for our hair on the tightest textures, built from the ground up for us, rather than us having to manipulate it and cocktail it so it works for us. We'd like to be spoken to as individuals because not everybody with texture Mm -hmm. and melanin is the same. And so we'd like to be able to design programs for ourselves. By the way, we care about sustainability. We'd like to be able to have product that isn't in single use plastic. And these were just really the feedback. We're no geniuses, top five things. (laughs) <laughs> that that people uh, didn't feel like they had or had enough of. And then through the journey, found so many brands doing amazing things that were speaking to our audience and our community. And the fact that the powers that be either in big beauty or who are writing the checks did not account for how strong a share of wallet this community is. So that is, the, from where I sit, I don't make these products some really brilliant people around me make products. <laughs> what I want to do is I want to change the way this industry views this audience, how important this audience is to the economy, how big our share of wallet is and yes. starts to meet our demand mm-hmm. and our expectations and our desire for preference. And that's why it's important to highlight all the great brands that are out there and ensure that they have platform, that they have distribution, that we have the benefit of preference. Um, And then when we do, I assure you, we will show our share of wallet is powerful, not just in the area of hair care, but our share of wallet is actually being demonstrated across the entire consumer landscape. We're just not getting credit for it. And what I love about this, and because we see so many different brands hit the market and so many problems that are trying to be solved. And what's so special about you is because you have leveraged your background data, being inside of companies at the highest levels, like sitting on the board of Revlon and having access to see it, but then going deep into the data and saying, how are we going to address the different pieces, right? Because there are so many people who are developing things because they had eczema. They had this one hair problem, and so I'm going to do one product that's going to address it. But it's so much greater than that. Carla Martin, who leads the global luxury business at Deloitte, one of our investors, and I know she's your dear friend too, You know, she talks a lot about the fact that consumers, there's just not enough product to meet consumer demand because of everything that you're saying. She's like, there's just not enough products on the shelves because we've been an afterthought or because we're siloed in you only want this or that. When we know we spend nine times more than any other group on hair care products. And so it's about finding the right products. And even when you talk about education, personalization, innovation, I love RX for that. Like the way that you are taking a quiz, you're getting a hair coach. I can't think of another brand who has coupled, you have a hair coach, you have the products, you have a system, I'm a systems person. So I love the ability to track alongside of someone and to understand because we're left with products because this is what we've been told, but we all are unique and we're all different. And everything that we do is impacting our strands. It is. It's true. And it's funny you say when when you say we know that we (laughs) over index by multiples the general market in spend. The data isn't there. That is why we have, we have, when we ask you to take these, whether you buy product or not, 
know that it is in service to demonstrating the data that we, you know, we have mm -hmm. a high expectation from brands. And this is, you know, collecting this data is how we get there because we demonstrate that we can, we will spend for good. Yes. And we're already spending for okay. Yes. Um, but it's interesting you say this, and this is where, as I said, I think there's so many great products. That, but we also know that the, the product in here mm -hmm. is not the, the product in here, <laughs> and this refillable, by the way, so we're not killing you know, the, the, the earth on which we stand. This is a hair health brand. Yes. It is not, you know, there will be styling, but it's really about, for people like me, I was stuck. Like I spent so much money on stylists and, and products and everything they told me to do. My hair didn't look any different from year one to year five, right? I was like, it's still this length, it's still this, I'm still getting the trims every time they tell me to get the trims. So it's really about like, what's the right program for you and how you stick with it. It's not unlike a diet or a fitness regimen where we've got to stick with a plan that's right for us, that we can sustain, that has results. So when you talk about the tracker, right, this is brilliant product, but this on its own is not going to get you to your hair goals. And that's the case with any product. And we've been kind of we all know that to be true, but we all still look as product as the gateway to, to, to hair health or success or hair goals. What we know is it's everything you do in between. Yes. And so designing a program that works for the individual, for everything they do in between wash day, that's ultimately what's going to get you to your hair goal. It's much like going on a, you know, a diet or a fitness regimen. It's, it's holistic. It's what you eat. It's what you, you know, how you live your lifestyle. It's how you sleep. It's the type of exercise you do over what period of time. And it's acknowledging that you and I might, look, for example, say, I want to lose five pounds. You don't need to lose a pound. No, but by the way, but <laughs> based on our genetics, age, metabolism, lifestyle, all of it, we're going to have totally different Yes. regimens and how to get there. Different diets, mm -hmm. different timelines, different exercise regimens, all of that will be different based on all of our different data points. Uh -huh. Same thing with hair, right? I want to grow my hair. I want, you know, I'm losing hair. I want to repair. I want, everybody's going to have a different plan. So it's not just what's in here. It's how you use it. It's how much you use. It's frequency. It's, and it's how, what you do every day in between to ensure that the good you're doing doesn't go backwards. So it's everything from our experts telling you, here's here's a great way to style your hair that's gonna be long-term, good for your hair, easy for you to do. You're not gonna look like Miss Seely every day, but you're also not gonna put the heat and the friction and the tension on your hair that's really been causing problems. So that is, you know, RX is ultimately about outcomes. And those outcomes aren't overnight outcomes. Those outcomes are investment of time and it's an investment of, of patience, but watch and you will get those outcomes if you stick to a regimen that works for you. It's, and it's the reality of it. It's such the counter to all of this, like Instagram, quick hit, quick fix, quick, blah, blah, blah. Like take this, do that because it's long-term. And I, it's so funny because I was sharing this with, with my daughter who's nine who is a competitive swimmer. And we're oh. going through this whole thing. I've been having her watch YouTube videos of the black British swimmer and our black American Olympic swimmer 
because I don't want her to not swim because of her hair. Because now she's all about a press out. It's all about a press out. Got this press out, trying all the things, literally went to swim practice. She swims two hours a day. It was done. It was done. It was done. And so I want her to understand everything that we do in between, like even the the cleansing rinse. Yeah. So I love this. And I also love how it's a system. So I was walking her through the website and all the different pieces. And we have to do all of these different things so that even if your hair gets wet, it's not a bad, oh my gosh, it's like my hair is going to fall out. Like it's a system, it's a process. And I feel like we're just, it was the education. We didn't know, like I talked to so many friends who are our age and we just didn't have it because we were siloed in this one thing. Or it was like, you have bad hair, it's never going to work. Just braid it up. Right. Well, it's, it's funny you say that and good for her for being a swimmer. Do you know how many swimmers we would have had? (laughs) You know, we'd be winning everything. Everything. We would be winning everything Everything. if we we didn't have to deal with the hair. But that's one of our biggest things. There were a lot of things, whether it's fitness, whether it's swimming that we've been told we can't do because you can't wash your hair that much because water is bad for your hair because and, you know, everything, you can do everything as long as you know how to take care of your hair and style your hair around what you're choosing to do. The idea that you can't wash your hair after a workout, that you can't <laughs> cleanse your scalp. There's so many myths. And one of the, the the first things we did as a team was come up with all the things that we've been taught and that turn out not to be true yes. and have held us back. And Johnny Wright, who's our, yes. our lead creative, um, and I tracked him down when the Obamas were in the White House because I was like, their hair is so good, <laughs> so healthy. And I know they're doing a lot to it. So you have to tell me what your, your, what your tricks are. And Johnny has a new book. He's done the, the yes. textured hair for dummies, which, yes. I mean, we're all dummies. Like, which comes with your package. Which when comes- you sign up for the RX <laughs> Package and Coaching, yes. you get the book. I mean, we're all dummies. I mean, it's amazing how much misinformation that we have that given how much time and energy we spend on this. The first thing he taught me, he said, protective styles are only protective if you can stomach the investment. And by that, he means, and this was really important to me, we know when I tell people what is spent on a sew-in or on a lace front or they're like, how are, or, or you know, your yeah. braids, how are people affording that? I don't know how people afford that is the answer because it is so expensive to do it well. And Johnny's point was, if your goal is healthy hair and really protecting your own hair, then these three things are necessary. You have to have an unbelievable person to install it. You have to have great product, i.e. the hair, the weft, mm-hmm. everything has to be top notch because you're putting something against your scalp and it, you know, there's a lot of bad product out there. And most importantly, you said, you've got to remember that your hair is underneath there and you got to take it out often. Yes. And that's the hardest part for people. One, because it's expensive, right? Because the convenience is so easy. And the idea that you would be taking your protective style out prematurely to many um, because it still looks good. It's not, not falling out <laughs> I yet. This up right it's here. It's, it's not falling out yet. So I can still hold on for another yes. two weeks. 
what it's doing to your hair underneath, the fact that you're not actually taking care of and deep conditioning and doing all the things with your hair underneath, you've got to take it out and you got to leave it out for a minute. Yes. And you've got to take care of it while it's out, do all the right things. So it's daunting, it's expensive, it's time consuming. So protective styles can be absolutely protective, but they have to be treated with the same level care. of care as this regimen we're talking about. And that means a lot of people are gonna take it out before they're ready. Yes. <laughs> before they're good and ready before and before ready. they wanna spend more money on another one. So it's just one of those things that you know nothing comes for free. You've gotta really invest the time and energy to have, uh, you know, to, to have to meet those hair goals. Or you could say, listen, I'm going to cut it real short and I'm going to wear my braids and my protective styles and I'm going to make it super, super easy. And that works too. But a lot of people think that they're growing their hair when they put their braids in or their sew-ins in. And they can be, but it requires being really very, very diabolical about how you're taking care of your hair underneath. And I love that too, because all things are possible with our hair. It's all things the are care. possible. All things are and possible. I do, you know, one of the things that I love, um, and thank you guys, because I got my amazing RX goodie bag. But what I loved was this notion of the refillables, honestly. And the fact that as black people, we want to be sustainable. We want to take care of ourselves. We want to be part of the environment and figuring out, how to do that and it's so revolutionary because yes we have these great heritage products but they haven't had the opportunity to catch up to the innovation because to your point it's like oh that's how people want it i was talking to somebody last night about a black owned brand that has done phenomenally well and we came to this conclusion that it's going to be hard for them to get past where they are because they're not there's nothing sustainable about it there's nothing clean. There's nothing this. And not that you need all of those things, but when you look at the sea of competitiveness that's happening, there has to be some consideration set mm -hmm. to get to the next level of the echelons of what non-Black or counterparts are doing. Sure. And so talk about this. This is G My daughter loves this. She thinks that it's just like made for her. But talk about the importance of the sustainable, the reusable. Like, it's so good. Listen, and getting better, this is round one, right? I mean, we wanted something, one, that came to you and you'd be proud to put on your vanity yes. or in your shower because we're so used to the the kind of graveyard of all the products that we've tried once or twice and it's all <laughs> oh, lots of colors and it's all yeah. over the bathroom, but just like something that's nice and elegant. And the idea is also like our routine changes. Um, so we wanted to be able to, right? You may, maybe going into summer, you're gonna change your cleanse, you're gonna change your condition. So we wanted you to be able to have something that you could refill and you could change as the seasons change, as your needs change. So you're not always throwing away single use plastic. And so you had something nice that didn't have to have a million, you know, words and warnings and ingredients on it that you could use um, and you could display. But really, it's, I don't think we're doing anything great here. I think it's table stakes. I don't think you can be a brand now that is not, does not demonstrate some awareness of how you're contributing to the environment. And again, going back to the, my experience in big beauty, there was an assumption that black folks don't, like this isn't high on our priority list. Sustainability, oh, well, that's, that's nice if you can get it, but it's not, it's not something that's important. 
And again, the data would show differently. And when we collected the data, it shows very differently. Like we care, we care as much, if not more so than other people. Um, so that's, uh, that's really the story of the, the refillables. But I think, I don't think it's terribly innovative. I think you're going to be seeing that you can't not have a sustainable view uh, as, a, as a modern brand today. Um, and the other thing that, you know, some might say is a little controversial, but the whole notion of for all hair types always blew me away. And I even saw our friends at Shea start to call out for all hair types. We're not for all hair types. <laughs> I'm going to make Let's it clear. Let's be clear. Let's be clear. Let's be very there are clear. plenty of brands that are for all hair types. And not to say that this can't work on many, many hair types, but to be clear, this was engineered for the tightest textures. So it was innovation led, but built from the ground up and tested on the tightest textures. Anybody who wants can use it, can enjoy it, can have great success with it. But the idea that products are developed for all hair types, like there's too much diversity. If you're doing something that's for all hair types, chances are it's not for you or you could do better. Yes, um, you so, better. you know, this is very much developed for what we thought was an underserved and underdeveloped market, which is the tightest textures and bringing this level of innovation to those textures uh, and adding to the plethora of wonderful heritage products and ingredient stories that we've been familiar with, but adding more preference, adding another component. And when you think about that, table states, what you're doing, being very clear that this is for the tightest textures, what is the future of RX? Like, what what are you working on? What are you innovating? What are you excited uh, about? What am I excited about? I've always been excited about the impact of using this as a brand to tell a story in the marketplace. What I'm excited about is, again, this may sound controversial, I'm excited about eliminating multicultural from beauty. If I have a goal, it is to demonstrate that what is being discussed and described as multicultural is in fact the general market, is in fact the mainstream. How do you do that? You eliminate the ghettos, multicultural groups that exist apart. So they're not getting the benefit of best practices from the headquarters and headquarters is not getting the benefit of a group that is actually at the forefront of what's happening in culture yes. and bringing them together. So you have representation and I speak from the boardroom to the C-suite, to the marketing department, down to the chemists. If you have representation all the way through these organizations, you are going to get the greater benefit from the entire organization. You need folks at every level of the, of the organization. They do not need to be put into multicultural groups. And so that is, you know, if, if I have a goal that, that begins to crumble, that architecture inside beauty begins to crumble and you get to see the real beauty and benefit of people who know and understand this, this marketplace. Um, and two, I would love to see the many, many brands that we know, black owned brands, uh, brands that are directed at black and brown consumers, be able to get the funding and the distribution to be able to demonstrate the share of wallet that this consumer can leverage. 
Those are the goals of RX. On a practical level, we are developing this digital tool. So no matter what product you use or what your regimen is, we can help refine it and design it and personalize it for the individual. Cece, this is amazing. I'm, I, my brain is like, oh my gosh, I have so many ideas. I want to support this. And, and just as someone who is working so closely with the multicultural groups at the big conglomerates, everything that you're saying is resonating because the data is showing us that Black consumers, we over-index technology, social media use. We, we're driving culture. We're driving trends. And so the power of putting that all together, yeah. and it's going to be interesting breaking down those systems and the people who designed it intentionally. Mm-hmm. And so I am raising my hand. I am on this mission for you and our ex. That's why I think it's so important people understand it's so much more than just a product. The mission around it, the community, the collective nature of what you're doing, that's, that's truly the impact. And we use our products to help tell that so that we can further our goals, right? And so it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I'm so excited. I have one last question as we wrap up. We are about community, as are you. And we always ask, what's another brand that we should support, that we should shout out, that we should buy, alongside of our ex? (laughs) Where do I start? Uh, it's a privilege to be among so many great brands. I love brands that are doing interesting things. I love 13 Loon for developing a platform to profile and distribute and demonstrate uh, great prestige and distribution has been one of our problematic um, points of access, you know, accessibility. I love Sienna Naturals. I love what they're doing. Uh, I think they need a lot more distribution and, and you know, the product is fantastic. Uh, my topicals, I love what she's doing and how she's telling a story, you know, from the perspective of black and brown Gen Zers, but to everyone, to the mainstream, again, demonstrating our cultural background, but to the mainstream. And uh, gosh, Ceremonia. I love what Baba's been doing with Ceremonia, and these are these are brands primarily in the beauty space. But I could go on and on in every other <laughs> well, in every CC's other space. That that, that'll we'll do another one of my picks of great uh, black and brown owned businesses uh, to support on the next podcast, the yes, next edition, well, the next edition when we come back and talk about the erosion of the multicultural department mm-hmm. and the conglomerate. Yeah, <laughs> but Cece, this has been amazing. You know how much I admire you. Thank you for oh, what you're doing you. for the industry. Thank you for the change that you're making. And of course, thank you for our ex. Thank you, Kendra. And every week I share an influencer I'm checking out. And this week, thank you, Cece. Make sure to follow Baba Riviera at My Ceremonia. My Ceremonia is an award-winning clean hair care wellness brand rooted in Latinx heritage. And with that, follow, rate, and subscribe to Business of the Beat on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss an episode, and we love to hear from you. Leave a five-star rating and a review. Until next week. 
Business of the Beat is hosted by Kendra Bracken-Ferguson. Assistant producer, Jenny Salk. Executive producer, Kendra Bracken-Ferguson. Edited by Fish Mar Creative. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Business of the Beat podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast, And on IG at Business of the Beat. Business of the Beat is a Mean Old Line Media production.